others. Some days we need to be reminded that you are God. That we don't have to be in control. That when things seem to be spiraling out of control, that you still have your eye upon each and every one of us. That when we're scared, when we're worried, when we're concerned, when we can't sort everything out, that you're in control, that you don't just have our future, you have our present, you have our right now in your hands, and that even when we can't see it, that we can trust your heart, that you have all things already taken care of. We come to you this morning and we ask that you would guide us in our conversation, that you would lead us into an understanding of how to approach you and how to come to you and how to recognize that you are God, that that would transform our lives today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, grab a seat. Good morning. As Pastor Michael mentioned, my name is Steve. You can call me. Steve, the first pastor I ever worked with had this saying, he'd say, call me pastor, teacher, friend, but please don't call me reverend. Um, Let's get this turned on for, there we go. Hey, welcome. So there was this guy. We have it on good authority. In fact, nobody disputes that there was this guy that was born, grew up. His name was Jesus. They called him Jesus of Nazareth. When he turned about 30 years old, he started his ministry, we call it. He became or set himself up or uh, introduced himself as a rabbi. Why 30 years old? Because that's when rabbis typically in Jewish first century culture were considered old enough to have something to say, something to teach. Something to be considered. 30 years old. That was normal in their society. 30 years old for a rabbi, that's when you kick it off and you start holding classes. Start inviting students to follow you. And Jesus did that. And nobody disputes in the scientific community, in the historical community, nobody disputes that there was this guy named Jesus that was a teacher, he was a rabbi, and... The first thing that Jesus did when Jesus started his ministry, anybody have a guess? What did he do? What, what, what? Well, there was the water and the wine. That was his first miracle. Yes? He called his disciples. There was a small group that Jesus started. We're talking about small groups a bit this week and today because we think it's an important way to Talk about things that you can't otherwise talk about. Things like faith and belief and doubt, dare we say it. Jesus started a small group. He called how many people to be his disciples? Anybody? Twelve. Anybody know a name of one disciple? Paul. Who else? Paul, Paul, Paul came later. He's an apostle, but yeah, okay. Who else? Peter. John. Who else? Luke came, Luke actually followed Paul around. They kind of came later. Mark, 
Uh, kind of wasn't, but you're on the right track. Anybody else? Matthew. Who? Joe Thomas. Thomas. Judas. Andrew. Good. We're on the right track. Let me read through them because I didn't know all the names. I always forget people like Thaddeus and Bart. Here's the name. Simon, Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Big James and John. Jesus called them the Sons of Thunder. They had these nicknames going on. Why? Because they didn't have the whole last name thing happening in the first century. So to keep them straight, because there were two James. There was Big James. There was James the Lesser. Eventually, there was James, Jesus' brother. That Okay, there were lots of James. Let's see. Simon, Peter, Andrew, Big James and John, James the Lesser. Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus. Matthew, we said, the tax collector. Simon the Zealot. So here we've got two Simons. Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot. Judas Iscariot. Um, How come we don't use that nickname anymore? Steve Iscariot. That would be scary. And Thomas. What was Thomas's nickname? Anybody? Doubting Thomas. Why? Have you ever heard someone actually who was not named Thomas? Maybe they were named Steve and they call him, oh, he's a doubting Thomas. It's it's this reference we use. And of all the nicknames that were used of the disciples, that's the one that sticks? Why? Well, for me, maybe it's because I I identify with Thomas as much as I do any of them. The whole doubt thing. We don't call people Steve the Zealot. Let's hope not. Or Steve the Son of Thunder. Uh, my dad would probably like that. But here's the thing. Thomas gets the bad rap, but the other disciples weren't any better. The whole story of Doubting Thomas comes out of a passage in John we're going to take a quick look at when we kick off today. Um, John chapter 20. That Sunday evening... That Sunday, that Sunday, Easter night, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were scared like junior high girls. (laughs) They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Why? Because the Jewish leaders had just killed off their rabbi, Jesus. And they were sure, they were sure that they were next. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you. Why? Because they're scared like junior high girls. You got locked doors and all of a sudden, boom, somebody's there with you. Yeah, I'd be a little concerned too. As he spoke, Jesus, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin. The word Thomas actually means twin, which means we may not have really known this guy's real name was not with the others when Jesus came, but the disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And he said, words that aren't repeated in church. He said, no, you haven't. In fact, he said, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers in them, and shove my hand into the wound at his side. Eight days later. So Jesus let him stew on this for a while. The Monday after the Monday... Jesus pops through the door again. 
The disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, as before. Why were they still locked? Let's come back to that. Fear. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace, settle down. It's just me. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my side. Look at my hands. Put your hand to the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. Here's a question for you. Why, of all the people that he could hang out with, why of all the people that Jesus would call, could call, did he call the most famous doubter and skeptic in the history of mankind to be his follower? Why? I think, because that makes space for me. I think that we're all doubters at some level. I think we've all got worry and fear and, and, and concern, and we aren't always all there all the time. Here's the deal. Doubt is part of faith. Doubt goes hand in hand with faith. They can't be separated. In fact, the only way to, re, to erase all doubt would be to get rid of all faith. You know who doesn't have any doubt? Someone without any faith. In fact, it's quite the corporate branding mistake that only one disciple was called the doubter because if one of them was guilty, they all were. They all were. Let's go back to the first part of the passage we just read. Remember, the disciples are all hiding behind locked doors like high school girls in a horror movie. Why? Well, because they don't have any doubt. They've got no doubt. Not at this point they don't. They've got no doubt that Jesus was dead. They've got no doubt that dead people stay dead. They were absolutely convinced that they were next. No doubt about it. So what did Jesus do when he suddenly appeared behind the locked doors? He played show and tell. This is to the non-Thomas disciples. Keep that in mind. All the other ones. He says, as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. Here's the thing. If we had a funeral on Friday and that person walked into church on Sunday, you'd have a hard time believing it if, even if you saw it. Ah, uh, he wasn't really dead. Uh, something, there would have to be an explanation. <laughs> and if somebody told you, hey, guess what we saw at church today? You would not believe that. That would not be an acceptable, rational thought for your brain. Every single one of us would want proof, and so did every single one of the disciples. That's why each of the, each of the Gospels, each of the Gospels records Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record that all of the disciples had doubt. They all had unbelief. Luke even tells us that Jesus asked for something to eat and they gave him some broiled fish. Why? Because ghosts don't eat. True. The disciples are looking at him saying, what in the world? And he, well, give, me some, give me something to eat and I'll, I'll prove that I'm not a ghost, that I'm the guy. Jesus took the time and made the effort for each 
of the disciples, including Thomas, after his resurrection, to build their faith and overcome their doubts. Build their faith, overcome their doubts. That's what our message series starting point's about. This is creating a way to have conversations about faith so that our doubts can be overcome. Not erased, not made light of, but just handled. Our doubts aren't going away, but our faith can be built and become more important than our doubts. Maybe you've realized this. Most Christian books that deal with Christian things have been written by people who believe Christian things. Most faith-based movies deal with Christian subjects and are marketed to Christian audiences. Most talks and messages that people like Pastor Michael give are given by people that already believe this stuff. It makes it kind of tough to get objective answers when we're talking about faith, doesn't it? On top of that, most places you go to learn about faith, like church, are not set up, they're not designed to be places to ask questions. Look, we're in rows. This is like a lecture hall. This isn't set up for you to say, um, I'm not sure I'm there yet. So to actually ask your questions, no matter how rational they are, no matter how concerning they are to you, it's hard to find a place. And when you have questions and you talk to another Christian, many times what you wind up with are faith-based answers to your fact-based questions. Can we talk about doubt in church? It's not common, but we've all got some. And if we're going to be honest, we should at least treat them honestly. Many people have significant doubts that all of the details of the story of Jesus are true. Many people find it tough to reconcile the faith that they grew up with as a kid with what they face and deal with every day. The world around them, the challenges that they're up against. Most people simply want clear, honest, easy to understand, reasonable answers to those questions And yet we don't have good places, a lot of times, to sort those out. That's one of the reasons that we're taking the time this month to promote small groups and to say, seriously, give it a shot. At least go for one week and put your toe in the water and see what that feels like. Because having a place that you can have an honest conversation might just change your faith. Welcome to Starting Point. Today's message is something happened. Today is all about teeing up, setting up a conversation about faith, getting it started. A conversation that you can maybe continue today over lunch, that you can have with your family, your friends, your coworkers throughout the week, or that you can do within a small group. I'm going to spend the next 30 minutes talking about this framework for faith. My goal today is simple. I'm not going to try and convince you of anything. I don't want you to believe anything is true or not true. Today, I simply want you to listen in on a conversation. The goal is to listen to how someone who knew the people who knew Jesus explained the Christian faith to someone who, to a group of people that had never heard 
about Jesus before. Okay? That these people had no connection with a Jesus or a resurrection or a death or anything else. So today, we're going to break this into three parts because I think this, this conversation is what gets us back right to the center to the starting point of the Christian faith. We're going to talk about something that each one of us has in common. We're going to talk about some different on-ramps to faith. And we're going to take a look, listen into a conversation that the Apostle Paul had in Athens. So, what we have in common. Every one of us, we all had a starting point. You had a starting point. Some of you were started on purpose. Some of you may have been considered a happy accident. Some of you may have gotten started through the miracles of modern science. We all had a starting point, and frankly, we're, we're glad you're here. Physical life is just one of many starting points that we've each had. We had, um, in fact, everything as a starting point. Your education had a starting point. Your career and if you went to college like I did, and then went here, and then went here, and then here, your career had a starting point. Your romantic life had a starting point. You were young, and you were in love, and your parents had to come up and say, Steve, this is your cousin. That doesn't work in <laughs> the way we do things. And in most states, you grew out of that eventually. Ouch. <laughs> if you got married, your marriage has a starting point. If you had kids, your parenting had a starting point. Everything in your life has a starting point, including faith. And you may not have thought about it this way before, but your faith had a starting point. It had a beginning. Um, probably many of us started in childhood based on conversations that we had with our parents, a priest, a pastor, somebody that we looked up to. Maybe it started in, in church or in a temple or a synagogue or at camp or vacation Bible school. We had this starting point that we can look back at and say, uh, right, right, right. That was the place that I first started learning about Jesus. Somewhere back there in childhood, you were handed a bunch of building blocks and given the opportunity to start sorting it out. And that's where your faith journey began. Or maybe nobody handed it to you and you just kind of cobbled it together based on your life experiences because something had to make sense. And we were trying to be reasonable and, and come to terms with what life was throwing at us. But somewhere back in childhood, for many of us, you started putting together your faith journey. It began, there was a starting point. For many of us, the free faith framework that we were handed included things like this. God is good. How many of you have heard that? God is good. We prayed before we could ever touch our food as kids. Some of us, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Now let's eat. Right? Before we could... Otherwise, you got to pray first. Other, I, I don't know why. Maybe it was trying to bless it based on who cooked it. I'm not sure. That something's wrong with it until we pray. That's what we were taught. We learned that God punishes evil and rewards good. Some form of that. Depending on the faith tradition you grew up in, don't be bad because God punishes the bad people. 
And in some faith traditions, that can look like all sorts of things. Maybe you didn't understand all of it, but you figured out there was some kind of formula. Be good, good stuff, be bad, naughty Steve. We learned that God answers prayer. Doesn't matter what kind of faith tradition you grew up in. This one's common to pretty much everything. You pray, God answers. We learned that. You can talk to God. They meant well. Whoever gave us these things, whoever started setting us up, there was no harm involved, intended. They meant well. Parents, priest, pastor, whoever helped us get started in faith. But for many of us, and I include myself in this, the framework we were handed as children didn't survive the realities of adulthood. At some point, many of us found it inadequate for the life and challenges we faced. Why? Because things happen when we get older. And every now and then, our childhood faith would take a hit. And after a while, because it wouldn't, under, it wouldn't do so well under the pressures of adult life, every while, the foundation we thought was firm wouldn't always support us, or the, certainly the challenges of adulthood. Sure, God is good. But there's a lot of bad in the world that God doesn't seem to do anything about. God, where are you? I was taught you're good, and I want to believe you're good, but it's hard to reconcile a bad world with a good God. I know you're supposed to punish evil and reward good, but there sure seems to be a lot of evil that gets rewarded, and a lot of good that goes unhelped, unblessed. In fact, God, there's a lot of good in my life that I thought you were going to reward, and my marriage didn't turn out the way I expected. My career didn't turn out like I expected. My kids didn't turn out like they were supposed to have, because... I was told if I do the right things, then the right things will happen, and it didn't necessarily work out that way. And I heard you answer prayer, but you didn't answer my prayer. And you didn't answer my mom's prayer, and my mom's one of the best people I know, and she prayed for my brother, and she prayed and prayed, and, pray, and he still died. What do you do with that? Sometimes our childhood faith gets chipped at and chipped away until it frankly, shatters, and there's next to nothing left. In fact, maybe you're here today and you're just hoping that there's something in this series that you're going to hear from Pastor Michael, maybe from myself, that kind of helps you restart your faith, that gives you something that you weren't aware of because we're sideways. Many of us need to reignite the faith that we had as kids because a long time ago, it just started not matching up. It wasn't that we wanted to get rid of it. It's not that we wanted to change. It's just it kind of fell by the wayside. Karen Armstrong has a book called The Case for God, and she says it this way. Many of us have been left stranded. Now, there's a word, stranded, with an incoherent concept of God. And she goes on, and she compares our faith to how we learned about Santa Claus. You better not pout. You better not cry. You better be good. I'm telling you why. Because Jesus punishes the bad kids. And, he, and we get it mixed up. And by the time we grow out of our Santa Claus beliefs, we kind of pitch often our understanding of Jesus because our faith never matured. 
We matured. We learned about Santa. We didn't mature in our faith, and so it kind of had the same wobble to it. And because of that, we wound up with a whole stack of irreconcilable differences. Because of that, Pastor Michael and I, we've been talking for the last six months probably, and we've come to the conclusion that many adults need a new starting point for their faith. We've been asking, what if we didn't know anything? Where would we start? What if we'd never read the Bible? Where would we start? What if we'd never gone to church? Where would we begin? Where would we start if we were starting all over as adults? So we're going to hit the restart button today. We're going to start all over together. We're going to learn some new things here, some challenging things. Our hope is that where there's been a gap, you'll find some foundation. Where things have started to break down, that you'll find some repair work able to go on. Because starting off with faith as a child is very different than starting off with faith as an adult. For many of us, the Bible was an on-ramp to faith as we were growing up. Not a problem with that. But if you grew up at a home like I did, you were taught the Bible. You were taught that the Bible was God's word. And I've always believed that. You were taught that the Bible was infallible, never failing. That it was inerrant, utterly flawless. You thought, were taught it was inspired. That God himself gave the words to the authors. But because the Bible was presented to us as a book, which it isn't, it became this house of cards. And all had, someone had to do was to pull out a couple of the foundational pieces, and the whole thing got topsy-turvy and could come tumbling down. Then we went to high school and college, and we found that those environments were hostile to the Bible. We were told the Bible was just literature. Yeah. That it might be sacred, but not scientific. It might be fascinating, but it certainly isn't factual. And it may be inspirational, but it certainly isn't true. The longer we spent times in environments that didn't respect the Bible, the more it began to lose its relevance. For many adults, the Bible says, the Bible says, isn't an adequate on-ramp to the Christian faith anymore. Many of us have been there, done that. Many of us are looking for something more, something different, something additional. For some of you, the Bible says is fine, has always been fine, has been the thing that started you in faith, has supported your faith, has gave you significant life in your faith. But you know, and I know people who that doesn't hold up for. There's good reason for that. The Bible says was never intended to be the starting place for faith. Oh, let's say that again. The Bible was never intended to be the starting point for faith. Why? Because the documents that make up the New Testament weren't actually put together for about 300 years after Jesus' death. And plenty of people came to faith, hundreds of thousands of Christians, Jesus' followers, came to faith without, the Bible says, because there wasn't a Bible to say. It didn't exist. So how did they start faith? That's what we're going to look at today, because maybe their starting point is going to need to be our starting point. Today we're going to listen to a conversation between the Apostle Paul and a group of people that knew nothing about Jesus. They'd never heard of Jesus. This is actually taken from a first century travel journal. Now, it's the book of Acts. And you're going to say, wait a minute, that's in the Bible, we're using the Bible. No, 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 no. Keep in mind that the book of Acts wasn't written to be part of the Bible. 
It wasn't actually part of the Bible for about 300 years. It was written by a doctor named Luke who traveled around the Mediterranean Rim with the Apostle Paul, and he was keeping track, making notes of everything that happened because he was sponsored by a wealthy patron named Theophilus, and that's who he wrote Acts in the book of Luke 2. Paul was his traveling companion. Paul, used to be known as Saul, hated Christians, was doing everything he could to wipe out Christianity, and then he became one. Everyone believes Paul was a historical figure that wrote to the early church. Everyone believes that Luke, in his early minute, traveled around with him and kept notes as well. That's what we're going to look at today. So in chapter 17 of Acts, this travel journal, if you will, We find the Apostle Paul wandering around the city of Athens. He was waiting for his traveling companions to show up. And we're going to listen to this conversation he had with some people in Athens. As a reminder, I'm not trying to convince you today that anything is true. All I want you to do is listen to how someone, about 20 years after Jesus died and was raised again, how someone explained Christianity to a group of people that had never heard anything. Because in this conversation, we get to the center of the Christian faith, the starting point. Here we go. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his traveling companions, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw in the city. This is the same Athens, Greece you can visit today. Paul thought that multiple idols represented confusion and uncertainty. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and those God-fearing Gentiles, the people that had converted to Judaism, and he spoke daily in the public square, the marketplace, to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Athens was a city of philosophers. Epicureans, they were like, hey, we can't figure this out. Just have a nice day and another glass of wine, you'll be fine. The Stoics believed, you give us enough time, we'll sort it all out. We'll figure all of this out, dot the T's, cross the I's. Paul met a group of them, began to engage with them at a deep level about philosophy and religion. He continues, when when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, Paul knows what he knows about Jesus because of who he knew. He knew Peter and John and James That's how Paul came to this. When they told him about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, the philosophers, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, this foreign god idea was a big deal. In Athens and in cities at that time, if you were going to introduce a new idea, a new god, you had to get permission. Because people had come in before with new ideas and new gods, and there had been civil war and strife and families fighting against each other, and they didn't want that to happen again. So you actually had to get permission. So they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. The high council was a society of the most learned philosophers in the city of Athens. They met at a place called the Areopagus. The Romans called it Mars Hill. Here's a picture. You can see it in the drawing. The Areopagus is on the right. On the left, the bigger hill, that's the Acropolis. Here's an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like in the first, city, uh, first century, perhaps. And this is what it looks like today. This is an actual place that you can actually visit. 
This isn't just a Bible story. Areopagus means the Rock of Aries. It's a big, bald hill made of marble. And out of it, they started carving these and placing these buildings. It functioned as the High Court of Appeals for criminal and civil cases, and that's why they were meeting with Paul there. So they took the Apostle Paul here to decide whether or not they were going to let him talk about this new idea. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come tell us about this new teaching. They said, you are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what this is all about. Okay? Start at the beginning, go slow. We've never heard any of this before. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious or superstitious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription, To an unknown God. So imagine this. We've got these altars all over the city, and one of them, (laughs) because we're trying to keep them straight, one of them says, To an unknown God, just in case they had missed somebody. (laughs) Yes, that's who this altar was for. In case they missed one, here is an actual altar dug up, found in the Palatine, This is a picture of an altar that's now in a museum. On this, you might even be able to make out some of the writing that's carved into it. This altar was uh, made of travertine. The plaque that's on it says it's dated between the 1st and 6th century before Christ. Who's this to? We don't know. But if that God shows up, we could say, hey, we've been waiting for you. We didn't know whose name to put on the altar, but we've got you. We're here. We're ready. What this told Paul and what he leverages is that there's doubt. There is unknown. It's true of all religions. There's uncertainty. We know what we know when there's stuff we don't know. We know what we're certain of, but there's uncertainties. So we laugh. But many people are the same way. There's a a reason that some people only show up for Christmas and Easter just in case. There's a reason that some of us have a little piece of jewelry that we rub when things get sideways or we want to touch or just in case. There's a reason that some of us have these Bible verses that come to mind that we'll actually start chanting or saying or in our mind we'll just roll it just in case. I'm not sure how it works, but just in case. Paul goes on, this God whom you worship without knowing. Paul is saying, hey, you're very religious. You want to know what's out there. You know there's something out there bigger than you, but you're guessing, aren't you? Yeah, we're guessing. You have doubts. You're not certain, right? Eh, We're not certain. If we were certain, there wouldn't be this unknown God thing sitting around. Paul continues. He says, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm going to tell you about. He is the God your pantheon of Greek gods. He is the one and only God who made the world and everything in it since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples. In other words, this unknown God, he's bigger than all the rest of your gods put together. You're not going to build a temple for him, and he's certainly not going to fit on your little altar. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. Rather, he gives him He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. In other words, your gods are way too small 
compared to the God of heaven and earth. Everything that's good in your life has come from this big, massive creator God. And he goes on. From one man, he created all the nations. Throughout the whole earth, he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. In other words, he's not just a God of the north or the south. He's not just a God of the Persians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Judeans. He is a God of all creation. His purpose... Paul continues, was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. Isn't that kind of a description of what we've gone through? We seek God, we look for him, sometimes it feels like we're fumbling around in the dark looking for a light switch. And then maybe we're surprised and think, well, maybe, okay, maybe there is a God. Then Paul quotes, and not from the Bible, the Bible didn't exist, right? He quotes from two of their own poets, Greek poets, and he says this, for in him we live and we move and exist, as some of your own poets have said. Also, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or or stone. In other words, if you can condense your God into a little thing that you can hold and manipulate and carve and create, what is that? God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. Repent of your sin or just change your mind is what this refers to. Because now God has done something. What did he do? He set a day for judging the world with justice by the man, the God-man, that he appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is. Whoa, 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 whoa. Proof? Religious proof? Is that an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp? Religious proof? Paul thought so. That's why he converted to Christianity. God did something. God proved something. Proof brings certainty. It takes us from hope so to know so. God proved this to everyone, the scripture says, by raising who this is, by raising him from the dead. And when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, they fell on their knees and they confessed that Jesus is Lord. And they started tearing down their idols and their altars and... No, that's not in there. I made that up. If you would read your Bibles, you'd know that. But that's not what happened. If this this were a Bible story, that would be exactly what happened. But this isn't, this isn't a story, this is a real conversation that happened in a real place by real people. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some of them laughed in contempt. Of course they did. Why, why would we be surprised about that? Because when people die, they generally stay dead. You can imagine, that's your proof? Somebody rose from the dead? We may be a bunch of idol-worshipping Athenians, but we know this. When people die, they stay dead. But others said, hmm. Say hmm. Hmm. Others said, huh. We want to hear more about this later. 
This message series starting point is about those who want to say, who take the moment to say, hmm. They want to find solid footing for their faith. The starting point for faith, for adult faith, it's not a Bible story. It's not just believe more. The starting point for faith as an adult is a question. And the question, this thing you've got to wrestle to the ground, whether you're starting your faith journey, whether you're coming back to church, you've been away for a long time, the question is simply this. Who is Jesus? The starting point for adult faith is this question. Who is Jesus? Jesus summed it up this way in in John chapter 12. I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. I've come to shine light so that no one in me should stay in darkness. Jesus came to make what was previously unknown known. He came to bring clarity where there was none and certainty where things were uncertain. And if you have a hard time believing it, which of course you do. God decided to prove it because he knew we were skeptical. That was no more surprise for us than it was for, his, for Jesus' own disciples. And he raised Jesus from the dead because Jesus is the Savior and Jesus is the Lord of all. Amen. Who is Jesus? That's where we're going to pick it up next week. Pastor Michael's going to pick it up. Go back one. In the meantime, I want to give you a homework assignment. Over lunch today, when you're sitting down with people, have a conversation. Two questions I want you to talk through. How and where did your faith journey begin, or what was your starting point for faith? And how well has your faith held up as you've grown up under you know, the pressures of adult life? Has it sustained you, or have you had to put it on life support? But the most important question you can wrestle to the ground is this. Who is Jesus? This is the starting point for Christian faith. Why? Because if there's a resurrected Savior, that changes everything. Thank you.